plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star. Are you are the party starts now? Well, hello, power partners, and welcome to Star Style. Be the star you are. We are coming to you live on the Voice America Network, and I am your host, Cynthia Bryan. We're brought to the airwaves under the auspices of Be the Star You Are charity. And I am very happy to be with you here today. The Miracle Moment is brought to you by Be The Star You Are charity. You can visit Be The Star You Are at bethestarur.org. And this quote was by Abraham Lincoln. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. I think (laughs) that is such a great, great adage, especially for the times that we are living in now. So we should remember that quote, all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And of course, that means man or woman. So today's show is going to be about food allergies, the power of touch, and information on the history of vaccines. In segment two, um, I bet you after, you know, all these months um, of isolation, you are probably very hungry for a hug. And so touch is a powerful feeling and every human needs it to thrive. So find out what you can do to get that loving feeling by staying tuned to segment two. And In segment three, we're going to talk about the mandating of vaccinations and what it has meant over time and throughout history. Because through the years, anti-vaxxers have taken to the streets demanding their rights as their children were dying of diseases that could have been avoided by inoculations. And even Benjamin Franklin had regrets about that. So we will talk about the history of vaccines and where we are today. But food allergies, you know, food allergies uh, can be incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And we tend not to even think about them in other people unless it's happening to us. But it can trigger an immune system response that affects several organs with reactions can be mild to deadly. And it's very important to know if you have an allergy or just an intolerance to specific uh, specific foods, and especially you need to know if you are dining out. So we want to look at um, how to dine out safely if you do have a food allergy in this segment. Because if you've ever been out to dinner um, and you have a very astute server, they might say to you when they after they hand you the menu, does anyone here have any allergies or restrictions that I need to know about? And so, you know, most of the time people just say no. But if you do have an allergy, 
you really and truly need to speak up and not to feel apologetic because it is it is your body. You need to stay safe. And every restaurant wants you to stay safe. In fact, many restaurants have even included in their uh, in their training kind of a food allergy Bible. And they try to train their servers on what to look out for and how to uh, look out for the well-being of their guests. And the uh, wait staff really take that responsibility seriously, especially in good restaurants. So, but you as the person who may have a food allergy or maybe your friend that you're taking out to dinner or maybe a child or a partner has it, what can you do to uh, make the situation more comfortable as well as to keep you all safe? Well, the first thing you want to do is communicate. You need to call ahead to the restaurant and this is very imperative and this is any um, doctors and restaurateurs who are experts in these food allergies, they really ask you to include a call to the restaurant. And if you don't feel that you're being heard to actually ask for the restaurant manager, as well as making notes, if you are using a reservation app, you know, like Open Table or Resi or Talk or one of those new uh, reservation services that are out there, uh, you should always put in the notation that you are allergic or sensitive to whatever it is that it that you have. But then, in addition, uh, you need to call because a conversation gives you an initial read of how the restaurant is going to handle uh, and you know how to handle the situation and how they're going to treat you as a guest and how they would treat the allergy you can gauge whether that they sound like they are acknowledging that this is something that is happening to you and they are going to take every precaution or you can also figure out if they just think it's no big deal. And in that case, you probably want to cancel your reservation and go somewhere else. So the second thing after communicating <laughs> uh, is to over-communicate. <laughs> and that means that when you arrive, you need to let the front of the house know that you have a food allergy. So the person that you check in with at the counter or the desk or wherever it is that, you know, the house welcome team, you have to let them know that you have this food allergy and that you definitely want your server as well as the cooks to know about it. And you want to be very specific about what your allergy is. Um, if it's not part of the protocol where you're dying, you know, where you are going to dine, then it is absolutely fine to just bring it up repeatedly as you order and when the food arrives at your table. I mean, seriously, when the waiter takes your order, look at the waiter and let's just say it's a peanut allergy. Um, and I should probably tell you what the eight most common allergens are. Uh, you probably already know, but for 90% of people with a food allergy, it's either an allergy to milk, peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, soy, wheat, shellfish, and fish. So it's those allergens 
that can cause anything from a mild reaction to very, very severe, including death. So when you order, be specific. And so say, yeah, I would like to have, you know, this pasta, but I am allergic to milk and, uh, and eggs. So I really need to have something that is not going to have those items in it and get that assurance from the waiter that they'll either check with the kitchen or uh, when they do bring it back, they, you should ask them again and say, are you sure that this doesn't have eggs and milk in it? Because those are my allergens. And, you know, don't think that you are being a pain in the behind because you really need to have egg-free and dairy-free. And if the allergy is life-threatening, you do not want to sugarcoat it at all. I mean, if it's a mild thing, you know, you could be maybe less cautious. But if it's not a mild thing, you really and truly have to be very, very clear. Foodallergy.org is a place that you can go. It provides cards that you can actually give directly to the chef in multiple languages so that there's no gap in communications or no doubt about what your allergy is. So um, you can either make up your own cards that you could hand to a server to hand to the kitchen or go to foodallergy.org. The next thing is to really be honest because physical reactions to food are common but they might call for a different protocol from the staff. You don't want to tell the staff or any, uh, any restaurant that you have an, a food allergy when what you really have is an intolerance or an aversion or a restriction. So, you, you know, because that, if you are, there's really a difference, and I'll tell you the difference between all those as soon as I finish this little um, bit of, of, uh, of information, because if you, those, all those things, the allergy, the intolerance, the aversion, the restriction, they're all very different in fact, and each one can take time and resources away from other diners who might actually have a serious allergy. So if you don't want to make the chef angry or the wait staff angry, um, you know, because they're going to have to change cutting boards, tongs, gloves, because a person says that they have a dairy allergy, for example. But then if the staff sees you, you know, eating ice cream, that is like a lie. So maybe you just didn't like something with milk in it. So you have to be really clear. So again, you don't want to lie or misinform about what your intolerance or aversion is. And you don't want to mix that up with being an allergy. Because uh, if you're like, if you're on a diet, for example, and so you're just not going to eat a certain food, that's really different than having an allergy. You can say something like, you know, I am on a, a special dietary restriction right now, so I can't have any dairy. And then the, that really gives the kitchen the um, leeway just not to put dairy in your food, but they don't have to, you know, uh, clean every single utensil, use different plates, use different bowls, use different cutting boards, all of that. So what is the lingo of allergies versus intolerance, aversion, and restriction. 
an allergy. When a food triggers an immune system response that actually affects multiple organs with a reaction that can range from mild to severe to even fatal, that is an allergy. Now we have uh, on our teen show, Express Yourself Teen Radio, one of our teen hosts who is um, very active and athletic. He has an allergy to almost all of those allergens that I um, told you. He has an allergy to peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, soy, wheat, shellfish, and fish. I think the only thing he can have is milk, and it's very, very serious. His uh, his allergy will end him in the emergency rooms and um, could kill him. So he has to be very careful about everything he eats when he goes to a picnic or a birthday party or um, most of the time what he says he does is although he participates in all activities with the other, with his friends, etc., he brings his own food. So that's a true allergy. Now intolerance, and intolerance can be very unpleasant, of course, and it needs to be respected. But the stakes are different than that with a food allergy. You might just get a tummy ache. You might uh, get gas. You might burp. Um, you know, you, you might just feel uncomfortable for a while, but it's not life-threatening. An aversion. Now, when there's something about an ingredient that you just don't like, it's totally valid. Everybody has their own, their own tastes, and that's totally fine. But it's not an allergy, and it shouldn't be treated as such. For example, I have two girlfriends who absolutely detest the taste of cilantro. I love cilantro. And when I was giving them my guacamole recipe, which I love, and I add a lot of cilantro, I did say, I know you don't like cilantro, so just, you know, don't use cilantro or perhaps use uh, parsley or nothing instead. But both of my friends, they both think it tastes like soap. So, you know, it's just a matter of that's called an aversion when you really just don't don't like something or it just it just, you know, tastes weird to you. A restriction. Now, that could be ethical. It could be religious or it could just be nobody's business whatsoever. <laughs> so your boundaries are need to always be respected. But again, having a restriction is not an allergy. So uh, a restriction could be if you are on some special diet at the moment. Um, you are you may be eating to gain weight or maybe you're you're eating differently to lose weight or you know, you're only staying on some certain dietary plan, that's totally a restriction. Now let's just talk about anaphylaxis. This is sometimes a life-threatening reaction that can happen within minutes after uh, an offending food is eaten, or in some cases, even hours or days. And it usually impairs your breathing, your blood circulation, and anaphylaxis can be fatal. And it can happen, you know, we've heard of people getting stung by a bee and going into anaphylactic shock. Or um, I had a, an anaphylactic, a, a really scary one with poison oak, where I got poison oak that went down my throat. Um, I guess it was smoke inhaling poison oak that had in a fire and it went and I think firefighters have had this issue too and I went into an anaphylactic 
um, very, very scary where I couldn't breathe anymore. Or it could even be a medication, something like that. So anaphylactic, if you, um, if, uh, if your allergy causes an anaphylactic shock, that is a very, very serious. So again, the, what you want to do if you're going out to eat, and that can be at a restaurant, could be at a friend's house, family member, a picnic, a, you know, a school a jaunt or a, a business meeting or anything that where you are not having your own food, make sure you call ahead. And then over-communicate by letting people know at the very time that you are sitting down for this meal what you cannot have. And ask, are there peanuts in this? Are you sure there are no tree nuts in this? And just then be very honest about it. And again, the eight allergens of food that people most have, 90% of the cases, are milk, peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, soy, wheat, shellfish and fish. I have another friend who is who's very allergic to lobster and within minutes she can go into an anaphylactic shock uh, and even just like a lobster broth. So it could be just as simple as um, a little bit of the flavoring in something. Be aware of what your allergies or restrictions or intolerances or aversions are and be vocal. Well, you are the star of your own performance. Remember that always. Now, also, there is the Food Allergy Research and Education reports that 32 million Americans deal with potentially threatening food allergies and that 85 million people are impacted by food allergies. And that group also, also estimates that every three minutes, a food-related reaction send somebody to the ER every three minutes. So be careful and uh, also keep keep eggs, milk, fish, meats, keep them refrigerated. You know, anything with mayonnaise in it, you'll be very careful. You don't want food poisoning either. So when we come back from break, we'll be talking about how we are all hungry for a hug. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. Be back. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world, lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR, 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 and visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan, www.cynthiabryan.com. 
Are you a teenager with lots to say but no one to talk to? Let your creativity explode and your voice be heard on the radio program Express Yourself, a show by teens, for teens, and about teens. No topic is off limits as you connect with teens with attitude. Check out Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel and join our global community where teens talk and the world listens. www.btsya.com You can express yourself become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america it's power time on star style be the star you are with your passion purpose and possibility producer cynthia bryan now back to the power party this business of show so I think we are, what, about 20 months into this pandemic and this time of isolation, which has just left so many people so hungry for the touch of a loved one. And uh, and also so many people who have been cutting their own hair and giving, giving themselves their own manicures or facials or whatever. So what is it that we're really craving? You know, um, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci had said to the Wall Street Journal that if it was up to him, we would never go back to handshaking again. And I can totally see how that could be true because last year, Evidently, it was the lowest amount of people that got sick from the flu because people were sheltering in place and wearing masks and gloves and nobody was touching anybody. So, uh, but American lives and, you know, lives really across the world, they become very distant. And we really can't assume any longer that as soon as you see somebody, it is okay to go up and give them a, a hug or even. It, to comfort somebody, you know, um, I know I'm being Italian. I'm a big hugger. When I see somebody that I know and love, I have to hug them. I'm, I'm really not a handshaking person. And, and even when I first meet somebody, if it's somebody that I've had some contact with and I'm looking forward to meeting, I usually just pull them in for a bear hug. However, I haven't done that in a while. And I definitely, definitely, um, miss it for sure. And then now, even like if you are taking a yoga class or anything, yoga instructors actually have to ask for explicit consent before adjusting anybody. And that's a real change. Um, and of course, you know, uh, some people uh, think this is a good idea and some people don't think it is a good idea. But bottom line, no matter where you look, the rules of engagement have been renegotiated and everybody's personal comfort zone has become really personal. It really is there. And there are so many boundaries now. And, you know, we can't find fault with that as we're all trying to stay safe and we're all trying to stay healthy. But with the global pandemic, it means that isolation has become a means of survival rather than a choice. And it has really exasperated what by behavioral psychologists describe as a pre-existing societal condition. So what, what is it that they say? They say that we actually stopped touching each other a long time ago. We just didn't notice because our collective lack of human touch 
which is a bodily necessity that these days is commonly described in language of malnourishment, like skin hunger, touch starved, starve for a hug, you know, it's all become an epidemic. But there was a recent survey conducted by Fields Lab at the University of Miami's Touch Research Institute, and 60% of respondents described themselves as touch-deprived when they were asked to gauge their levels of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress. It's like a prohibition is what uh, one of the Field Lab says, that when something is taken away from you, you want it more than you did when you had it. Isn't that so true? But for many women, the lapse has been kind of a blessing because it was a break from that rab, you know, going to a bar and being patted on the butt or grabbed or, you know, that questionable brush from an office mate that you weren't sure or just constant navigation of whether a touch is feeling right. But for others who have spent the whole what, 20 months, the year and a half, whatever it is, in solitude at their own homes with the absence of other human touch. It has really been traumatic. And so many people um, that I know, when things opened up, especially uh, women as well as men who were going to a barber or going to a hair salon, when it opened up enough that they felt safe to go and get their hair cut, their hair washed, whatever, you know, get that scalp massage. It was like, oh my gosh, this feels so good. <laughs> it was, it was kind of the whole idea of the COVID really hit home that people had really been starving themselves. So our need for touch is a lot more dramatic than people think. And neuroscientists at John Hopkins University have um, it, have illustrated this because so many people think of touch as a secondary sense, but the reality is it isn't. Touch is that undersung but very critical part of being a human being. And while being touch starved is not a condition, I mean, it's really not a disease, it's just something that we made up, there's really no way to diagnose or quantify that void that humans have been feeling uh, with this extraordinary time that everybody's been living through. Because touch is the actual first sense that we ever experience. Think about that. When we are born, it's touch. It's our earliest form of communication. It is that language that we use to form our first and our most lasting bonds. Uh, and, you know, it's very interesting because uh, this past week I was able to uh, see my daughter and my new baby granddaughter. And, um, of course, the baby isn't talking or anything, but it is that power of touch and actually, you know, the cooing kind of thing that we do. But it's the touch that really means something. So, um the it's it is really a, a mystical effect on our brains and our bodies. It's we nobody knows really how we all develop, which is why every parent is so well versed in that power of skin on skin contact with an infant. In fact, when the, you know when a baby is born, 
the, uh, normally, like in a hospital, the very first thing is the baby is put skin to skin on the mother's breast. And there's something about that skin to skin contact. It's how we communicate love and trust and empathy. It builds familiarity and it really begins the cycle of day in, day out human interaction. So that it's very, very, um, it's very important. I think it's very important. Now, touch is also our most relentless sense. So let's think about this. You can close your eyes, you can cover your ears, but you can never shut down your skin because your skin is the largest organ on your body. It, it carries the most information throughout your whole body and it's covering your whole body. Every part of our body is covered in these fine velous hairs. I mean, they're so fine, you can hardly see them. But those are nerve endings at the base of those hairs, and they act as microscopic motion sensors. And they are choosy, according to the scientists. I mean, if you lightly run your finger along someone's skin too slowly, it's going to give them the chills. If you um, stroke too fast, it's going to feel really abrupt and maybe abrasive. So the optimum speed is what the doctors say is one inch per second, and that's called a caress. So I guess if you want to be romantic, you just very slowly and very very lightly move your finger or your hand along the skin. Now, the University of Miami's field has focused so much of the research on pressure receptors that lie underneath the skin because brain waves actually change when you're moving the skin. Noting that moderate pressure touch, that would be firmer than a caress, has been linked to a slowing of the heart rate, a release of mood boasting, uh, a mood boosting and boasting uh, serotonin, and a firm t- a touch, a firm caress, also can drop your the pain that you might feel, and your cortisol levels. So these benefits um, are really important, and they cut both ways. Um, elderly people who massage babies experienced very dramatic benefits. They had lower stress levels, an increase in pleasure than when they were massaged themselves. Now, I can't imagine... I. I, I really love getting a reflexology or a massage. It's been a very long time now, but I definitely miss it. And when you're hurting, there's just nothing better than all that, that pressure. But it's interesting that um, even massaging a baby or being in touch with a baby will lower your stress levels and increase your pleasure. So um, the thing that you need to know is... What everybody needs more of is some me time. So we really need to think about what it is that you need to get more of the touch. And interestingly enough, when it comes to touch, um, just touching, you know, like massaging your own hand isn't the same as having somebody else massage your hand. 
it's very transactional and when someone else does it. It's one-sided when you're doing it to yourself. And although it can transmit some of the same chemical and neurological benefits, um, it's better when you have somebody else helping you with your self-care. So I'm hoping that there's somebody in your life that you can hug a family member or a friend or someone uh, close by because there is just nothing better than a hug and to know that to know that somebody um, somebody cares and that they can transmit that to you through another uh, arm's length and the feeling of touch. Well, I'm going to take a short break, bring you a business bite, and when we come back. There's a long history of vaccine mandates in America, and we've been through the ups and downs of people who want them and people who don't want them, and uh, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm going to bring some information to you that was actually published in the Wall Street Journal that I found really fascinating, and hopefully you will too. Because during the Revolutionary War, General George Washington compelled his soldiers to be inoculated against smallpox, and there were no syringes involved. You want to find out what they did? Stay tuned for segment three. I am Cynthia Bryan, and I'm coming to you on the Voice America Network. We're coming to you live. The show is Star Style, Be the Star You Are. And we're with you every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. Don't go away. Stay tuned for a business bite. And then we'll be back with the long history of vaccine mandates in America. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. There's an old saying that states, fools learn nothing from wise men, but wise men learn much from fools. Wisdom is a gift that can have a tremendous impact on your success. Most people think wisdom only comes from old age, but that's not true. Wisdom comes from a willingness to be a student of life, a willingness to be a lifelong learner. Wise people learn that success does not come from a certain set of circumstances, but rather from a certain set of attitudes. To increase your business acumen, seek wisdom and share it with others. You are the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan with another business bite from Star Style. For more information, visit CynthiaBryan.com. Be the star you are. The star you are. The annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. 
Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. BeTheStarYouAre.org. Dare to care. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show. Well, I find that this is going to be really fascinating. I hope it's fascinating for you because there's such a long history of vaccine mandates in America. And of course, there's, it goes back actually several hundred years uh, in, in other areas. But the COVID-19 pandemic really has revived this debate over public health and individual liberties. And uh, I want to just share with you how it, some of it goes, uh, some of what we're talking about today goes back to colonial times. But in February of 1991, there were five Philadelphia children who died from a disease that was supposedly extinct. It was measles. And measles had once sickened millions of pre-adolescents, hospitalizing like 50,000, killing close to 500 annually before there was a successful vaccine that was developed in 1963. And then cases dropped dramatically after that because all the states began to mandate measles shots for school children. And vaccine hesitancy and resistance was very, very rare in those days. But in Philadelphia, in that winter, this, um, and this is in 1991, the great bulk of serious cases came from a single source. It was a church, and they rejected, in quotes, all means of healing apart from God's way, end quote. So the members took no medicines. They didn't own thermometers. They didn't go to doctors. They rejected birth control. They raised huge, large families in close quarters. And what witnesses said, it was like entering a time warp. The parents were very courteous, very caring, very honest people, other than the fact that they stayed at home and watched their children die of measles. <laughs> uh, I mean, they were great people, except for they didn't do anything to help their kids. So city officials moved very quickly to contain the threat because working through the courts, they won access to the homes of these congregants and the authority to vaccinate the children against the stated wishes of the parents. Because remember, each parent had many, many children and they're all dying. So the irony um, that was noted is the vaccine, um, uh, about the vaccine, is that the parents had probably done nothing illegal because the statute meaning vaccinations in Pennsylvania contained a religious exemption, but in dire circumstances, mounting a defense against parents' actions was close to impossible because even the ACLU took a pass at that. Though that case has pretty much been forgotten today, the outbreak really raised fundamental legal and political questions. So when claims of individual rights clash head-on with public health measures that are designed to urgently save lives immediately and to protect the larger community, who gets to make the key decisions? And how far can the government go? 
And where does the authority lie in America's complicated federal system? Well, these issues are actually back at the top of the national agenda, thanks to the coronavirus. And as we know, um, in September, President Joe Biden announced a very sweeping vaccine requirement um, that affects 100 million people. I think it's you know one of the most sweeping ones in American history because he relied on his, par- his powers to direct federal funding to enforce federal workplace laws, ordering businesses with 100 or more employees to ensure that all workers are either vaccinated or tested weekly for the coronavirus. And um, they can get you know paid time off uh, to get their shots. But the new rules also require vaccinations for federal workers and for contractors doing business with the federal government, as well as for workers at healthcare facilities that receive funding from Medicare or Medicaid. Um, and what he said is, we've been patient, but our patient is wearing thin. And the refusal of, vaccinate, of to get vaccinated is costing the lives of many Americans. So the primary authority for the new mandate is actually a federal statute from 1970 that gives the Secretary of Labor the authority to issue an emergency temporary standard. It's called an ETS that lasts six months to protect workers from, quote, grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful, end quote. The provision is an outlier. I mean, it's rarely tried since the court struck down the ETS for asbestos in the 1980s. So this dramatic move by our president, it triggered a real political and legal battle with many Republican governors, as you've read, vowing to fight the new mandates in court. Now, some experts believe that the measures will pass legal and constitutional muster but others are less certain. So the question is, is an infectious disease the same as a toxic substance? Does COVID-19 present a grave danger? Has the executive branch exceeded its authority in offering a federal solution to a problem that heretofore was reserved to the states? Do these mandates violate the 14th Amendment by depriving workers of their personal liberties? Or are there other measures less intrusive than vaccination for dealing with the situation? So as we know, there is fierce disagreement over vaccines, and it may feel like yet another way that today's political polarization is just destroying a previous consensus. But passionate disagreements about public health um, mandates are there nothing new in the United States. So the new measures, they're wide ranging, but they don't actually make uh, vaccines compulsory. The government may levy a fine or forbid a child from attending school, but no American is going to be forced to get an unwanted jab. Now, here's where it's interesting. So during the Revolutionary War, by contrast, George Washington immunized his troops against smallpox, against their will. The fearful disease killed one-third of those infected, and it left survivors pockmarked um, for life. Now, Washington, who had survived the virus himself, described smallpox to Virginia's governor, Patrick Henry, 
as more destructive to an army in a natural way than the enemy's sword. And that was in quotes, more destructive to an army in a natural way than the enemy's sword. So infection had actually doomed the American assault on Quebec in 1775, and it threatened Washington's main force camp at Morristown in New Jersey. So at the time, the process known as variolation consisted, so this is not a vaccination, it's called variolation. It consisted of scraping a pustule of an infected smallpox victim and transferring the contents to an uninfected person who contracted a milder case of the disease. Now, there was a mortality rate of less than 3%, so that was pretty good. But in early 1777, and of course, the mortality rate with doing the variolation was much less than if you got smallpox, 33% of you died. So in 1777, Washington ordered his troops to be variolated secretly to keep the British from learning that so many men were quarantined in the sick bay. And it actually proved to be his most brilliant gamble because smallpox largely disappeared completely from the ranks. Now, in 1796, the English scientist Edward Jenner discovered a much safer method of immunization using cowpox. And it was related, but it was a milder virus. And the new smallpox vaccine got a mixed reception in the U.S. And some Americans resisted it for reasons of personal safety or religious belief, because they said what good could possibly come from polluting the body with a dangerous foreign matter, because that was coming from cows, right? And why challenge the plans of the creator? And which people still say today, you know, if God wants me to die, I'm going to die. So still, Jenner's vaccine was a clear improvement. It drove a steady decline in smallpox outbreaks throughout the 19th century. And the states passed laws requiring smallpox vaccinations for school children. And it actually forcibly vaccinated prisoners, paupers, and orphans. But sometimes the battle over vaccination led to street battles with police confronting crowds that were enraged by attempts to quarantine entire neighborhoods or forcibly remove six children from their home. And in 1894, there was a Milwaukee newspaper that described this confrontation of mobs of German and Polish women armed with, I loved this, bats, potato mashers, clubs and bed slats. Can you imagine? They took their bed slats, you know, the wooden slats, and they started attacking healthcare uh, department officials and stoning the guards. So in 1905, the issue of vaccine mandates, it reached the Supreme Court in the case that was called Jacobinson versus Massachusetts. And the case involved this uh, Henning Jacobson. He was a Lutheran pastor in Massachusetts who defied a city ordinance requiring a smallpox vaccination during the outbreak. And if you resisted, you were faced with a $5 fine, and he wasn't going to pay the fine. And he was a respected community leader. He aired his grievances, you know, not only on the church, but beyond the courtroom. And he claimed the vaccine was dangerous, which wasn't an unreasonable stance in an era before vaccines were regulated by a federal government. Um, and, you know, it did cause some adverse reactions in some people. Tell me today, vaccines are carefully purified to prevent bacterial con uh, contamination. But in those days, people didn't even wash their hands. They didn't clean their um, 
their utensils. Um, sometimes they would have germs on them. You know, they, they could even cause tetanus or, or syphilis or other diseases. And he had insisted that healthy and law-abiding people like himself, they posed no danger to the community. And even if his refusal to be vaccinated led him to spreading the smallpox virus, he argued the only possible victims would be others who failed to get the vaccination. So in other words, it would be people of his own kind. It would be the unvaccinated. So um, anyway, scientists refuted that idea, explaining that many people can't be vaccinated because they're immunocompromised or they have allergies or whatever it is. And the Supreme Court disagreed with them in the, a majority opinion, uh, which was written by a Justice John Marshall Harlan, asserted that the liberty secured by the Constitution does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. Quite the contrary. The Constitution rests upon the fundamental principle of the social compact that all shall be governed by certain laws for the protection, safety, prosperity, and happiness of the people, and not for the profit, honor, or private interests of any one man, family, or class of men. So they said that he had broken the law, um, etc. So the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover uh, to cover cutting the fallopian tubes is what was actually written by one justice. So mandates became actually a national concern during the great influenza of 1918, which killed 675,000 Americans. And at that time, the population was like a third of what it is today. But public health measures didn't include vaccinations because there was no such thing as a flu vaccine then. Instead, health officials relied on tools that we know, face masks, social distancing, banning public events, closing schools and businesses. And they weren't controversial in 1918 as they are in 2021, uh, probably because the flu was so deadly, deadlier than COVID-19, and there was no treatment, no vaccination. And the nation was also in the midst of World War I, which put a premium on obeying authority and remaining healthy because you had to support the troops. So there was a major study of mortality rates during the 1918 pandemic, and it showed that American cities, which intervened early, enforced the restrictions and kept the lid on the longest, fared better than the cities that didn't. But even then, there was controversy over who did and didn't follow the strict public uh, guidelines. And as always, there's always going to be some public official who says to do this, and then they do the opposite. But during World War II, the U.S. military made vaccinations mandatory for a host of diseases, typhoid, yellow fever, tetanus. And while some worked better than others, vaccinations became an accepted part of life for GIs. And the GIs brought this attitude home, and it was really successful vaccines were developed against children's diseases like polio, measles, mumps, chickenpox. And guided by the Supreme Court's ruling, uh, that Jacobinson that I told you about, all 50 states put laws on the books mandating vaccinations for school children. Medical and religious exemptions were added, though few ever used them. Now, these days... Um, of in those days, I should say, of nearly universal compliance with vaccine requirements, those days are gone. 
the revival of the anti-vaccine movement in the 1990s was driven by claims of a link between the ever-increasing number of vaccines mandated for children and the proliferation of unexplained afflictions, kind of like autism. Now, all those theories have been debunked. But people were saying, why vaccinated against diseases like polio or measles? Because they've been eradicated. Well, the thing is, is if you're not vaccinated, they could come back. So it seemed that vaccines had done their job too well. They'd really erased the tragic evidence of why they were needed in the first place. So now with COVID-19, anti-vaccine anxieties have found their way into the political mainstream again. An estimated 80 million Americans remain unvaccinated against COVID. And many factors have fueled resistance to the life-saving shots, including doubts about about their lightning-quick development, possible long-term effects, But a growing distrust of expertise, including medical science, has also played a role, along with claims that personal freedoms have been abridged. And almost 300 years ago, Benjamin Franklin went through his own inner struggle over whether to have his sons variolated against smallpox, which was then the cutting-edge medical technology. And in his autobiography, he worried that well-meaning people were tragically misjudging the risks and rewards as he himself had done. In quotes, in 1736, I lost my son, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of parents who omit that operation on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing that the regret may be the same either way, and that, therefore, the safer should have been chosen, unquote. So whatever you decide to do, just know that the debate has been going on for uh, many, many years, hundreds of years. But I do hope you will get vaccinated because I would like everybody to be alive and around here to listen to this show for many years more. Well, thanks for being great listeners, allowing me into your life. Make sure you're tuned right here to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. For more information about me, visit CynthiaBryan.com. For the charity, BeTheStarYouAre.org. And until next week, when we celebrate once again, remember that love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep you happy. I'm Cynthia Bryan for Star Style. I thank you, and I encourage you to be the star you are. Be your unapologetically authentic self and make it a wonderful, healthy week. Thanks for joining me. Ciao for now. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. You are the star. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain and motivate you to be the star you were born to be for more information visit starstyleradio.com and to make a donation to the charity go to be the star you ignite the flame that burns brightly within take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect cynthia bryan every wednesday at 4 p.m pacific time 7 p.m eastern time right here on the voice america empowerment channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style until we celebrate together next week be the star you are